0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series of Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We are going to uh, dive in, got a lot to go over. Um... And today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I Once again, I was planning on going all the way up to verse 9 and decided there was just too much. So I decided to uh, break it down rather than keep us here till 6 o'clock tonight. So we're going to look at verses 1, and you should all be grateful for that. Um, so we're going to read the first five verses Here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as always, they're going to be on the screen and they're in the booklet and you can follow along in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, hear the words of the Spirit of the living God. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. have nothing to do with them." That's a cheery passage right there, isn't it? Um, Recently, I've been going through, and uh, I had started reading a number of months ago a a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. If you've ever seen it, it is a massive tome. I'm listening to it on Audible, it's like 60 hours long. And it's uh, in-depth, report of kind of how the Nazis came to power and everything that went on by a journalist, William Shearer, who was actually stationed in Berlin and Austria when all these events were happening. He happened to be actually down in Austria when the Nazis came in and took over Austria. So he's giving a first-hand report of it. And it's really amazing to look and to see. And one of the themes that keeps coming out in the book is how unprepared the Western democracies were to deal with Adolf Hitler. They did not understand what he was doing. They were not prepared for it. They kept missing the signs of his intentions. They kept believing, in short, what he was telling them was true. But the crazy thing was, there was no reason. About the only guy that understood was Winston Churchill. Churchill was screaming to everybody about who Hitler was and what he was doing, but the amazing thing was anybody could have known what Hitler was doing. He had written a book called Mein Kampf where he'd explained everything he was going to do. It was all there. We're going to get back to Sudetenland. We're going to take over Austria. We've got to have all the living room in the East. He'd explained everything he was going to do pretty much step by step, but nobody was prepared. It's kind of Crazy to watch, and i 've been reading this in part because I feel sometimes like we 're living in the mid 1930s again. It almost makes me want to take an Eastern view of history being cyclic as I watch some of the things because th- there, are, there are world leaders right now that have told us what they believe and how they want to act, and then we 're still getting shocked when they actually act the way they told us they were going to act based on what they believe and So it's important for us to understand that we should not be caught unprepared. God has told us in the Scripture what the days in which we live are going to be like. Yet I find Christians who are sometimes surprised by what that is, but we have been told over and over again in the Scripture what the days in which we live will be like and how we are to live in response to that. So, what uh, is it that God's telling us? Let's dive in. Well, the first thing is we're told there are going to be terrible times in the last days. Notice Paul says this right here uh, in verse 1. But mark this, Timothy, pay attention to this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Now, it may strike us a little bit unusual if you've been following through and reading the book because he was talking about the false teachers and what they were like and the way they were going. And then all of a sudden he says, but Mark, there's going to be terrible times in the last days. Now, he's doing this because this is not the first time he's mentioned this to Timothy. And in fact, it's very common teaching in the New Testament. Notice actually if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. So he had previously written to Timothy just a few years before and he had said this. The spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with the hot iron. So notice he said there, look, the Spirit is clearly telling the church, this is what you should expect. There are going to be these deceitful teachings coming forth. They are actually things that are demonic in their origin. It's going to end up searing people's consciences. There are problems with both what is being taught, both in the doctrine and in the conduct of that doctrine, what follows uh, conduct morally wise, false teachings and unholy living. So he'd already warned Timothy about this and he's reminding him now. But it's not just Paul. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, which is actually quoted by Jude in Jude chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Peter says this, first of all, you must understand That in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Exact same phrase we're looking at in our text today, in the last days. In fact, that phrase only occurs a couple other times in the New Testament and notice what he says is going to happen. There's going to be scoffers. They're not going to believe. They're going to push away the good news of the gospel, and rather rather than the gospel, they want to follow their own evil desires, very similar to what it is in 1 Peter chapter 4. They reject the truth. They embrace lies, and they do this because they want to live according to their own desires rather than holiness, and in fact, The entire context in 2 Peter 3 and in Jude chapter 1 is a context where it is a call for holiness. But they're telling them, look, don't be surprised. We're calling you to holiness, but the culture surrounding you is going to be arrayed against that. Now, you should have a question because very often, and I remember being a young believer and reading passages like this and thinking, wow, I wonder when the last days will be. Let me answer now. They've, they've, but not because it's something new, okay? Paul wasn't suddenly saying, you know, I've been talking to you about the false teachers. Now I'm going to go into an eschatology lesson that has nothing to do with what you're dealing with, Timothy. That's not what's going on. What he's saying is, look, there's false teachers here. This isn't a surprise. It's a mark of the last days, And you live in the last days, Timothy. Now, how do we know that? If you notice down in verse 5, as he describes these characteristics of the last days and the people, he tells Timothy, present tense, have nothing to do with them. Now, we're going to see it's not really so much the people who are being influenced as it is the teachers who refuse to embrace the gospel. But notice what Paul's saying. He's not saying Timothy... Write this down because thousands of years from now, it'll be the last days, and these things will come true. He's saying, Timothy, these things are true. We've already been told they were true. It is the last days. Here's how you live in light of the last days. So we must separate from these last days false prophets. Now, this is important, and I'm not going to go into much this morning, but we must understand, Every single time the New Testament uses the phrase the last days, it refers to the entire period from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. So there's all kinds of prophecy. today. You can see all kinds of the Russia's invaded Ukraine. Are we in the last days? Yes, and it has nothing to do with Russia invading Ukraine whatsoever. We're in the last days because if you are a Christian, You have been living in the last days. There is no more last days. In fact, and I'll go over this in After Hours, I can tell you we are in the last hour because John said they were in the last hour 2,000 years ago and there is no such thing as the last minute or last second. That's not a New Testament category. We're in the last days because they started when Jesus came. The Book of Hebrews says there were all kinds of prophets that spoke before, but in these last days God has spoken by His Son. That started the last days, and so we are living in the last days. All Christians, so all the things Paul is describing are going to be evident throughout the last days. And you need to understand this is what's important because we might have thought, well, I thought when Jesus came, things were going to get fixed, everything was going to be better. But see, the New Testament tells us over and over and over again, don't be deceived. Yes, Christ has come. Yes, the kingdom has been planted. Yes, it is starting to grow. It is working like yeast throughout the dough. But make no mistake, there's going to be false teachers. There are going to be scoffers. There are going to be difficult times. And in fact, there is going to be great ungodliness. That is a mark of the last days. And so we're going to take a look now at what Paul tells us and then how how that can help us in our own walk and how we respond to it. And what he's telling us is, look, there's going to be moral decay in the last days. Yes, the Messiah has come. Yes, he has established the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom is growing, but there is still moral decay in these last days. Now, you can note in verses 2 to 4, after he said there's going to be these terrible times, uh, he gives this description And one of the commentators, you know, some people don't like reading this. But the commentator said, yeah, but just look around. It's an accurate description. It may be depressing, but it's not like, wow, Paul just, you know, where was that guy living? In the world is where he was living. Because it is a reality. And so this is what's known as a vice list. And you'll be glad to know there's almost 20 items. I'm not going to go in-depth over all 20 items, okay? We're not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to kind of give some general descriptors because when Paul does these things, they're meant to help us understand some general principles, and he does this a lot. If you want, you can look at the notes online later, but for example, Paul in Romans 1, 29 to 31 In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, in Colossians 3, 5 to 9, and also in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, all of those are vice lists, real similar. Paul goes through and lays out and says, look, this is what these things look like. And many of them, some of them talk about the last days, some of them are just saying, look, this is what the sinful nature is trying to build in us as opposed to what the Holy Spirit is trying to build in us this is what unregenerate man looks like this is what God wants us to put off and not be part of some of the sins are unique they only appear once some of them are pretty common they show up in a lot of the list because they're probably more common struggles but we're going to just take a look and try and note some general things about these which will help us first in my own struggle with sin and then secondly, for how the church responds. So the first things to note, number one is the root problem is disordered love. The root issue is disordered love. Notice in verses 2 and 4, the first and the last items in the list. The first items are people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. The last items in the list is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I've mentioned this before, but this is helping us learn how to read. In, there's a literary device that's known as inclusio. It means when you've got a long list of things, if you start with something and you end with basically the same thing, you're highlighting and saying, this is really important. This is central. Don't get lost in a, in a wash of 18 or 20 things. I'm going to start and end with the same thing so that you really keep it fixed in your mind. And what is central here is the idea of disordered love, a love that is wrongly oriented. So Paul says, look, people love themselves, people live for their own pleasure rather than loving God and living for God. I mean, don't get you know, he mentions they're lovers of money, but that is not that people pulled out a coin and were like, oh, I love this coin. What, why do we love money? Yep, it lets me buy whatever else I take pleasure in. Whatever that is, it might buy me political power, it might buy me entertainment, it might buy me sexual stuff, it might buy me, back then, slaves, it might buy me influence, whatever it is, but money lets me get the things that I want to take pleasure in. And so these people are oriented, we are created to have a love that is ordered towards God. Our very nature, the way we are made is we are made to be oriented in love towards God, but Paul says these folks are, rather than being ordered and oriented towards God, are going to be oriented towards themselves. And everything else is in service of that. Why do they love money? Because it lets me be oriented towards myself. Why am I a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God? Because I put myself at the center of the universe, what I want. Now, this is important even for believers to understand. The root of sin and vice is always disordered love. You and I might have different sins. I may look at your sin and say, I don't even understand why you would even want that. But see, it doesn't matter. I've got my sins. And they are all growing out of the soil of disordered love. I've put something or someone before God himself. I love something or someone more than I am loving God himself. I actually taught about this a lot a few years ago in the series called The Root Vices, where we looked at what are sometimes called the seven deadly sins, and the soil out of which that tree grows is disordered love. This is one of the great things that St. Augustine, as he wrestled, as he was coming to Christ, that Augustine really wrestled and came to understand is whenever I am off the path, I can trace it back, my love got oriented the wrong way. And every sin traces back to that. When we start by orienting ourselves to something or someone other than God, we are getting ourselves in deep trouble already. But secondly, it moves on, and notice the next step in in the list, both at the beginning and the end, deal with pride, arrogance, and conceit. So, after we read about lovers of themselves, lovers of money, we have boastful and proud. Then he goes on, and then at the end of the list, right before he comes to the end about lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, the last thing we get is conceited. So there are boastful, proud, and conceited. And this is because when my love is supposed to be oriented towards God and I've turned it towards myself, who have I made the center of the universe? Me. See, and that is what pride and arrogance and conceit are about. We are deluded with pride. This is literally what happens in the garden. Okay, this is the picture of what happens in the garden. Rather than being oriented towards God and his word and loving him and embracing who he is, Adam and Eve get turned in on themselves and they, they arrogantly reach out and take the one thing that is not theirs, thinking that they can actually determine right and wrong for themselves. But that's above our pay grade. If you are a creature, it is above your pay grade and your intelligence level to determine right and wrong for yourself. That goes against what it means to be a creature. So that's pride is this next thing in. And those who place themselves at the center of the universe make themselves the determiner of truth. And when we do that, it is deep deception. It is deep. Arrogance. There is no greater arrogance than to say, I am the determiner of truth versus error, good versus evil. Show me a people that are doing that and and they are in deep deception. But there's a third step that arises out of this, and they always lead this way. This leads to a breakdown in relationships. Notice a whole bunch of other things come up after boastful and proud. We get abusive, disobedient to their parents. In verse 3, he's actually listing a whole bunch of words that it's, we stick un on the front of something. In Greek, they stick what's known as the alpha, they stick an ah on the front, and it means not this. So they are without love or not loving, unforgiving slanderous. They are brutal. They are uh, treacherous. They are rash. Notice all of these things are describing relationships with one another. They're describing social breakdown in a relationship between people. What else could be the outcome? When I have turned myself from loving God to loving myself and putting myself at the center and I run into you, and you have put yourself at the center, what is going to come out of that? World War II, or three, or big arguments in the Hicks household this afternoon. That's what's going to happen. When two sinners put themselves in the center and pridefully say, I'm what everything revolves around, Count on it. Take it to the bank. There is going to be relational conflict. And you know what makes it worse? Let a 100 sinners put themselves at the center and try to live together. And you know what makes it worse? Let 330 million sinners put themselves at the center and try to live together. And you know what makes it worse? Social media. (laughs) Where we've now got 8 billion people at the center. And how dare you disagree with me? Don't you know that I'm the fount of all wisdom and knowledge? See, that's exactly. So Paul says, do you see what's going to happen here? There's going to be all of this relational friction. And note that disordered love and pride will always lead to interpersonal conflict. And again, This is not just true in the church. Paul's dealing with Timothy and what's happening in a local church there. But is this true in a marriage? Okay, now it's going to get quiet. See, when a husband and a wife, I see all kinds of nonverbal communication going on right now. When a husband and a wife are in conflict, you can guarantee at the root of us at least one, if not both of us are saying, how dare you not worship me? Right? See, we're smarter than that. We're better theologians than to put it that baldly, but is that not what we're doing? I have these needs and my needs and what I want. I'm a lover of pleasure. I'm a lover of myself rather than God. And if I've already made that and I put myself on the throne, you're not doing that? Well, now we're going to have conflict. And, of course, the other person says, well, everything was right about that except for I'm supposed to be the center. That's exactly what happens in a family. And it's what happens in churches. And it's what happens in communities, businesses, you name it. When human beings come together, when we are oriented away from God, it's going to lead to pride and it's going to lead to relational conflict. That is the inevitable outcome. Which is why the New Testament speaks about this so much. And then the last step in it is that they, these are people who become full of moral decay. Notice some of the other words that are here. Ungrateful. And, and don't pass by that one too quick. We live in an ungrateful age. We, so many people who are ungrateful. And that is always high on the list. If you look in Romans 1, one of the first things Paul says is they were not grateful to God. Serious issue. Ungrateful. Unholy. Verse 3 says they are without self-control. Verse, later in verse 3, they are not lovers of the good. They, they are against the good. When they see good, it doesn't attract them In fact, if you go far enough down this, they can even become repelled to the good. And notice, this follows inexorably Because they have placed themselves at the center rather than God, why would they be grateful? Who would I be grateful to? Watch our culture every year at Thanksgiving. We are struggling with this as a culture. If we've denied that there's a God, then who am I giving thanks to? I'm sending positive, thankful thoughts out there. Deep in our core, we just know that doesn't even make sense, okay? It's bound to lead to being ungrateful. And we find reasons to complain rather than be grateful, which leads to even, that, that is like setting the relational conflict into concrete, their moral compass is broken so they're unholy in their conduct and they love evil rather than good. And because they love themselves and pleasure more than God, they lack any ability to say no to their own desires. So notice right there at the center of the list is no self-control. Because if I've become a lover of myself, is there any potential for me recognizing and saying, I think that desire of mine's not very good right now. And, and I, but I'm going to say no to my desire. Well, why would I say no? I'm at the center. My love is oriented towards me. My love is oriented towards what I desire. So the only possibility is to say yes. I Whatever I desire must be good. You should hear that in our culture right now. And it is not only bad, it is a sign of how far down you are at the bottom of the whirlpool when you come to a place that I can't even begin to critique my desires. Now, Paul brings up one other thing which is really, really interesting here is there is a desire among these people that they still want to claim to know God. So, what he kind of ends the list with is he comes and he says, Look, the result of all of this is they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And this is really kind of a description of all the other vices. When one has got a disordered love, I am prideful, I am in relational conflict, I have embraced evil rather than good, error rather than truth, the ugly rather than the beautiful. The end outcome of that is I have a form of godliness but I have denied its power. And what Paul is running into here, uh, or Timothy's running into in the church in Ephesus that Paul's dealing with is that these people want to claim to follow God while keeping themselves and their desires on the throne. They don't want to receive God's word if God's word is going to critique what they're desiring and how they are trying to live their lives. Now, it's interesting, he says they claim a form of godliness. This word godliness is a key word in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Um, It's a Greek word, eusebia, and it occurs actually 10 times in the pastoral epistles and only 15 in the entire New Testament. So twice as much in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus as the rest of the New Testament combined. In other words, this is a big issue. Paul is dealing with this idea of godliness, and uh, you, you know. So I, I won't take the time to tell you right now what those ten times are. But if you look online, you can look in the notes and see the ten times they occur in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. And it's especially in First Timothy. Uh, actually, eight of the ten are in First Timothy. That he had already written Timothy a bunch about this, and. Godliness is an embrace of the true faith, and it includes holiness. It includes that if you're saying you are part of God's holy people, that you're embracing that I'm going to try and walk in holiness. So therefore, it's not surprising that in the pastoral epistles, one of the things we read is that godliness requires believers to do the strenuous work of turning from our sinful desires and pursuing the growth of godly character, of saying, I don't want to embrace vice, I want to embrace virtue, of saying, I don't want to give in to this relational conflict, I want to be a peacemaker, of saying, I don't want to give in to my pride and arrogance, I want to admit that God is on the throne, of recognizing where my love is disordered and saying, God, I need you by the Holy Spirit to help me orient my love back to you. It's called sanctification. And so notice a couple of passages in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, which is kind of the way Paul describes much of this speculative teaching of the heretics, but rather train yourself to be godly. That's literally train yourself in godliness, same exact word. Is here that they have a form of godliness. It's Eusebia. And he says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness, the exact same word. So godly and godliness there is the same word in Greek. Uh, Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So notice, Paul's using a metaphor here. And he's saying, do you understand? Physical training. We've talked about this before as we've looked at it. Is physical training easy or Hard. Hard. Why do most people not exercise? Right, because it's hard. We all want to convince ourselves, see, if I just do this for like two days, it's going to get easy. Well, I can tell you I'm a lifetime into it right now, and tomorrow morning my first thought is going to be, God, I don't want to go run. (laughs) And if you saw me, I've mentioned this before, you would think somebody stop and give that guy O2. He looks like he's dying out there. Okay? it's difficult. It is hard work. And Paul says that's a metaphor for what it's like in the Christian life to cultivate godliness. Just because you're a believer, just because you've come to Jesus, doesn't mean there's not effort to put sin down and embrace righteousness. It's training. And it's like every morning when the alarm goes off and I think I don't want to run, my next thought has to be, But I'm going to go run. And when the thought comes, I want to walk the way of putting myself, my desires, my urges at the center to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn towards righteousness by the grace and power of God. Notice in 1 Timothy 6.11, he tells Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. He's been talking about the, the characteristics of the false teachers, including at the end, that they think godliness is a means to financial gain. There, And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You, oh man of God, you have to flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness. Same word. You have to pursue Eusebius. It's not just sitting there. It's going to take you getting up and chasing it down. So it's like physical training. It's like us laboring and working. But see, what these people are wanting to say is, I'm part of God's holy people, but when I have a sinful urge, I'm going to say, God made me that way. I'm going to say, I embrace that. Because see, my desires are already oriented towards me, and if I want it, it must be good. Which is death to any chance of moral improvement. Any chance of moral improvement whatsoever. And so that's exactly what these people are doing. They're claiming a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God to root out sin because this is not a call to you and I to do it in our own power. Notice he says that in 2 Timothy 3, 5, but in 2 Timothy 1, 7, and 8, I remind us very early because, you know, Paul was kind of laying his hand out early in the letter and he told Timothy, you know, so here he's saying these people deny the power of God. They, they deny the power of godliness. Remember back in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, he said, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. If you are part of the people of God, the Holy Spirit is in you, and he is the spirit of power. So there's no laying there and saying, well, this is too hard. No, the, the Holy Spirit is there to empower us. In verse 8, He also says, don't be ashamed to testify about the Lord. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Hi. How? By the power of God. Not by your own power, Timothy. You're not going to be able to do it. But the Spirit is given to you. God's power is within you to enable you and I to be able to do this. Every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence who enables you and me to be able to recognize sinful desires and to turn from them rather than embracing them. And those who fully embrace the gospel and truly have embraced the gospel and have received the Spirit are not going to be lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure, but are going to be willing to suffer to be faithful to Christ and the gospel. Now, I can say I wish sanctification was something that you had to do the first year of your Christian life I'm 44 years in and it's still going so I could ask some folks who've been, Donnie and Myrtle, y'all have been believers believer longer than me is it still going still going so if you're trying to hang on to the day when you're not gonna have to walk through this struggle That's called when one of the doctors in our church says, yep, they have breathed their last. And you wake up and you're seeing Jesus face to face. The struggle will be over. Until then, there is a struggle. But notice, see, the heretics want to have their cake and eat it too. I want to claim to be part of the people of God, God's holy people, but I don't want to walk in holiness. I want to claim to have a form of godliness, but at the same time I'm going to deny the power of the gospel and the spirit of God to actually help me put down my desires. And friends, see here's the mark of the last days. We live in an age that is trying to strengthen with everything in it telling you and me, you don't need to do that. Just embrace it. Just be your authentic self. Sin Is never authentic it is not part of what it means to be human we were made without sin and we will one day be fully and gloriously human without sin and sanctification is not me putting down my authentic self it's me putting down that which is trying to distort my authentic self. To embrace who I actually am made to be. That's what it is about. And so we do not give in to false teachers. See, when Paul says have nothing to do with them, he's not talking about unbelievers out there. He's talking about those who want to stand up in the church and they want to distort the gospel so they can have their form of godliness and then cut the line of power and say, but I can be as sinful as I want to be. We can't do that because it is destructive to who we are. And most of us, when we wake up the next morning after I've had my sin fast, I don't ever say, Wow, that was really good. That was, that was freeing. We realize, Dear God, why did I do that? Why did I give in to that? Because that's what sin does. So, Let's apply the word briefly and we will come to the table. Number one in applying the word, I want to remind us of the glorious gospel. Paul has been constantly reminding Timothy. And you remember the first antidote to this infection, this gangrenous infection of false teaching was to keep reminding them of these things. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep the gospel central. I want to remind us in doing that, friends, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are not saved by your efforts, I am not saved by mine. And thanks be to God. As Paul said there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Thanks be to God. It is not, your your place in heaven and mine is not that I got sanctified enough. Don't misunderstand that. It is all by grace, every bit of it. And so each week as we come here, why it's so important to gather is we gather and we sing and we pray and we open the word of God and we teach this glorious gospel. And then each week we see it at the table and we partake of the grace of God at the table because you and I need that. So do not be deceived, our works can never save us. And if you are here, if you are listening, and you have never embraced Christ by faith, don't believe the American gospel of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You'll never get off the ground. You will not make it. You will not stand before a holy God. His standards are far higher than anything you or I can imagine. But thankfully, our sins though they are many, His mercy is more. That is the gospel. I urge you with everything in me, if you have never looked to him, uh, to Christ by faith, do it now. And if you are a believer, I encourage you, every, you don't need it once a week, every day, tomorrow, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. But as we're doing so, I want to remind us of the power of the gospel and, and the spirit. Because the gospel takes us as we are. I can't clean myself. Okay, I like rolling around in the muck of a pigsty. The more I wipe, the more I get it on me. I cannot do it. The gospel takes us as we are, but thanks be to God, it also changes us. It is powerful to save from sin's penalty and also sin's power. Those who are part of God's people are regenerated. They are born again. They are new creations. And that's why we can no longer make peace with sin. We, the Spirit is working in us to change us and set us free. I mentioned one of the other vice lists is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. I'm just going to read it real briefly. But notice what Paul says. Do you not know? that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But see, our culture says, if you're born that way, that's who you are. But listen to the gospel. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul says, look, that which used to define you no longer defines you. That does not mean you may not still have a struggle with that thing, but it means it's not your identity Our culture is working overtime here in these last days and there has been nothing more demonic than the ideas of how our identity is formed. This idea of expressive individualism and there's a lot of roots that go back. It has been hundreds of years. We live in the day where this thing is congealed around us and it is telling you to identify yourself by these aberrant desires. That is not who you are. And how many of us have aberrant desires? If you're not waving both hands, you are deceived. But thanks be to God, that's not my identity. I am created the image of God the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, made for relationship with my God, made for relationship with you, recognizing I am not the center, I am a creature, but I am the very image of that God. And though I am fallen, though I am broken, though I am flawed, Christ has come. He has worked redemption for me. The Spirit of God has regenerated me. He dwells in me. And my identity is in Christ. That's who we are. Don't buy the lie. It's destructive to who we are. And so I I encourage you. You may be here. You may get weary. You may feel that you're Struggle against your particular sin. I'm never going to get up. A... Today, cry out for the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save. Cry out for the spirit of God to empower you, to work, to change you. But don't give in to the heresy that is all around us that says just identify yourself. Just lay there in it. Just Wallowing. That is not who we are. Sin is always destructive and de- deforming. And I want to encourage you during Lent. I-, I have been enjoying this Lent, which sounds weird. I'm I'm enjoying denying myself. Okay? But I am. I'm enjoying this week as I fasted and I prayed and I said, every time my stomach is reminding me I am not the center of the universe, just skip a meal and find out how mortal you are, every time that happens to say, I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, I want to desire you, not my own ways. Use this time to let the Lord work that in us. And now we're going to come to the Lord's table. And as we do so, I want to encourage you to receive strength when we come here. Friends, this is not just ceremony. The Spirit of God is here to feed and empower you and me. And so as we come, I urge you, cry out to the Spirit for God to make himself real and known and to empower you. I'm going to begin by reading. Uh, a couple of passages of Scripture together in 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 10. God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord And drink the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. If you are here and you belong to the Lord and you've embraced the gospel, struggling though you may be, though your sanctification may be up and down, if you are here and saying by the Spirit of God I want to turn from my sin and I want to embrace righteousness I want to encourage you to come to the table. This is not for those who are sin- sinless. If it was, I would not put my hands on this bread. This is for we who are weary and struggling with our sin. For God to come and to meet us, and to empower us to walk in holiness. If that is you, I invite you to come. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he would given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread... Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. For this reason, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and they drink of the cup. I added the two verses at the end today to encourage us as we're coming before the Lord's table today. Let's let the Spirit open up. If there's an area where you say, I made a peace treaty. I've made a peace treaty with the devil here. Confess. Let the Spirit break that in us this morning and receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Let's go ahead and open up the bread. Our triune God, you are, are the center of the universe. From you all creation came, made out of the overflow of your love and joy and goodness, meant to find its meaning and joy in relationship with you. But our father Adam chose to make himself the center, attempting to determine right and wrong for himself. And oh Lord, we have followed in his footsteps. As a creature, he and we are not equal to this task. So his choice brought bondage instead of freedom, sorrow instead of joy, and death rather than life. Yet you continue to graciously provide food And drink for us so that we might seek you and reach out for you and give you thanks. And through Jesus, you have brought us to yourself and you have favored us with spiritual food and drink and eternal life. So as your people, we come humbly confessing our sins and full of gratitude, giving you thanks for Jesus and the gift of eternal life we have through him. To you be the glory forever. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, when you came to this world, the angel said to give you the name Jesus because you came to save your people from their sin. By your atoning death, You have done this, forever delivering us from the penalty of sin and beginning even now the work of freeing us from its dominion. And as your people, we give you thanks for this great salvation, rejoicing in the blessing of sins forgiven and crying out for the daily experience of growing freedom from the power of sin. We thank you that through your blood we are new creations so that the old ways of sin no longer define us for our identity is found in following you. To you be the glory forever. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And I invite you to cry out to me for the Holy Spirit. come powerfully upon us and to empower us this coming week. Holy Spirit, at the dawn of creation, when all was darkness and chaos, you hovered over the waters to bring order, light, and life so that everything was good. And you were breathed into a mere lump of clay so that it became life the very image of God. And in the same way, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, full of darkness and chaos, you came upon us so that we became alive, filled with light, and set in proper relationship to the Father. And so we cry out now for you to fill us anew so that the darkness of sin would be banished from our life, and the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ would shine in and through us. Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit of the Lord who dwells in us, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This week... Oh, Spirit, as we daily contemplate the glory of our Lord, looking to Him and feeding upon Him each day in the Word, transform us more and more into His likeness so that we might have ever-increasing glory. And we pray that You would shine in and through us so that others may see and find the freedom that is given only in Christ. We ask this in his name, and God's people say, amen. 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 Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will Do it. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.